The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio. This is the Employment Law Show on Global News Radio. And welcome to it. Good to have you along here again. And uh, we're back at it. John Scholes along with Stan Faisalberg, uh, courtesy of Stan Fu to Mark and LLP, the most positively reviewed employment law firm in Canada. I tell you true. It is a fact. You can check that out anytime you like. Stan is ready to uh, to take all your your calls and uh, we'll get them going. We've got a, a bunch of emails mounting up over the last couple of weeks. So I know Stan wants to machete his way through a bunch of those. So we'll get to those as well. But uh have no fear. The phone calls always and will be a uh, top priority. 416-870-6400. 416-870-6400 to call here now over the next 48 minutes or so and ask your questions on air. It's a good thing to do because you'll be getting an answer for yourself and you're probably asking a question that many other people have scratching their heads as well. So you're helping everybody else out when you call in and ask uh, ask those questions. Email, simple, help at employmentlawyer.ca. Stan, before we get into a ton of emails tonight and our phone calls, you wanted to talk about something having to do with Amazon. What's uh, what's the story on that, pal? Yeah, it's actually a, a huge week for Amazon. Um, because more so relates to what's going on south of the border. But before I get to that, I want to touch on something that happened in Canada earlier this month, uh, which some of our listeners may remember. Amazon's facility out in Brampton, their warehouse facility, was in early March shut down by the Peel Medical Office because of continuous problems with COVID outbreaks. Uh, Apparently, John, they've had 600 positive cases since October. Mm -hmm. And just to give you some perspective, we're talking, there's only 5,000 workers in this facility. So we're talking about one out of over 10 people in this facility having tested positive for COVID in essentially the last seven months. Uh, and this is, you know, and the the ironic thing here is that before they actually shut down this Amazon facility, the the Brampton transit system stopped running routes and buses to the facility because nine different uh, transit officers were also tested positive for COVID on those routes. Now, Brampton says that's an unrelated issue and they haven't quite, you know, they're not making that connection, but it's hard not to see that correlation. Sure. And this is all in spite of the fact, John, that the Ministry of Labor has apparently been to this particular site 12 times and issued eight different work orders since March of last year. And tying this back to what's going on down south, because it's all interrelated, really, you know, in Alabama, there is a landmark uh, union drive, the voting of which actually ends today for potentially having the first unionized workplace for Amazon in the United States or Canada. Uh, an absolutely huge, huge dry union drive with a lot of implications. Amazon has been knowingly very aggressive in fighting that union drive. And, you know, when you re- read the complaints that these people are bringing forward and why they've decided to try to unionize, you hear a running theme. And the, the main complaints revolve around the productivity tracking that Amazon does, uh, the the lack of restrooms and safety concerns in its facilities related to COVID, similar to what's going on in Canada. And, and I don't necessarily try to pick on Amazon here 
but only to wanted to highlight this as an example of the issues that employees are going to continuously face as we go into back into the workplace. And hopefully, I think as we we all hope that this COVID pandemic ends, you know, we have this friction between companies pulling people back into the workplace and employees still worrying about their safety. And this was highlighted, you know, in, in this Amazon example. Uh, and even more so, I mean, the Ministry of Labor, here in this Amazon example, we have the Ministry of Labor stepping in knowingly, you know, knowing about these incidents, repeatedly issuing work orders. And yet in March of just this year, the medical officer has to shut down the facility because 200 and some, uh, and some odd cases yeah. within the last few weeks popped up. So, you know, the, this is the main point and thrust of what I'm trying to say here is that employees have to be sh- make sure that they are looking out for themselves in these instances and knowing their rights and standing up for themselves because nobody else will do it for you. But, you know, to every employee listening out there, you have a right to refuse unsafe work and you cannot be punished or terminated by law for doing so. If you have any of these concerns, you know, I strongly urge them to call us at the firm and, ha- and discuss their situations with us. By the way, to uh, reach out to Stan or member of the team at the firm, simple. It is one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. But here now, of course, four one six eight seven zero sixty four hundred. And I uh, want to get our phone calls as always priority. Chris, thank you for standing by at the uh, the opener there. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Great. What's on your mind? Uh, so I was offered a uh, a new job recently, and the offer uh, essentially says that if I'm terminated. Uh, without cause, they would give me two weeks per year of service, up to uh, up to a maximum of twelve uh, twelve months. And I guess I'm just wondering if that's uh, is that a, co- a common provision? Well, firstly, Chris, I, mean, uh, I would just want to congratulate you on the new job. That's always an exciting opportunity and step in life. Uh, in terms of the clause you're you, you're reading out, I'm sure you're paraphrasing it somewhat because. These clauses, you know, what, what, I, what I can say is that the clauses in the specific language matter very, very much. So it, it's not a matter of what they're offering you in this clause so much. I mean, it's part of the context and the way that we analyze these things. But the real question is, does this clause violate the Employment Standards Act in any way? And when I say any way, I mean even hypothetically if it can violate it. So, you know, for example, yours, you mentioned that yours says two weeks per year. Well, what I can tell you is that after five years, every employer, employee in Ontario who works in an employment uh, place of work that has a payroll of over $2.5 million is entitled to two weeks per year. And that two weeks is prorated, or at least the severance portion of that, of that is prorated. So if yours says you get two weeks per year, but after six and a half years, you're only getting 12 as opposed to uh 12 and a half, like required under the Employment Standards Act, well, that's a potential violation of the Employment Standards Act and may render that clause unenforceable. Oh, I think we lost Chris. I hope he caught uh, caught the rest of your comments. So, but there you go, Chris. If you have any other questions, feel free to uh, to call back. Absolutely. Uh, 416-870-6400 is the number to uh, to call through. Got plenty of time, plenty of room, so bring it on in. 416-870-6400. As mentioned, Stan, I want to get to a, a ton of email tonight in between the calls, so we'll uh, we'll get at her. 
Tanya is up first, says, uh, Stan, my employer terminated overtime pay. Made us, the employees, sign something before OP, uh, OT pay stopped. My question is, is that legal? Yeah, uh, I mean, that's clearly not legal, Tanya. You know, overtime pay isn't something that's contractual right for most employees. It's not something that the employee and the employer agree to. It's something that's written into the statute. If you work more than 44 hours a week, you are entitled to overtime pay or time and a half for each additional hour. There are certain exceptions as it relates to managers, uh, IT people, but generally speaking, that applies to everyone working in Ontario. And you signing a contract saying, well, I'm not entitled to overtime and I consent to not being paid overtime, it doesn't matter. You can't agree to something that's illegal and violates the statute. So the short answer is that that's absolutely not legal, Tanya. And if your employer is making you sign that, you should either go speak to the Ministry of Labor or give us a call. Tanya, reaching out to uh, to Stan or a member of the team, uh, don't hesitate uh, to make that phone call, one 855 821 There's also pocketemploymentlawyer.ca, amazing website, robust, all kinds of Employment law information there and absolutely free and anonymous as well. But here and now, 416-870-6400. Moving down to uh, Thomas. Thomas is up next, says, uh, guys, I get a bonus every year from the company, which is usually payable in April. I resigned in February to take another job, and I'm being told that I won't be paid my 2020 bonus because I, I was not employed at the payout date. Can they do that? So, John, again, this is where I I get back to focusing on the language of the contract. Because the language is what dictates what happens, essentially. That's what you're agreeing to. Now, most of these times, these bonus plans are somewhere saying in a shelf uh, of policies that employees have never seen. In that situation, there's no question. There's no language that this entitles to it, at least no language that you've ever seen. Therefore, you could never have agreed to it. And by working the full year, you're implicitly entitled to the bonus. If, however, there is language that does say you have to be employed on the date of payout, and that, and you know, even more specific than that, that that doesn't count common law uh, entitlements, then you could in fact be disentitled to a bonus in that situation. That's why you know it's very important to even in this situation before resigning consider the implications here. Consider whether, you know, it makes sense to walk away and talk, even if you need to talk to a lawyer about what it means for you to walk away in these situations. Because yeah. you know, in what the scenario that Thomas is laying out, I mean, it may very well be, depending on the language of the contract, he doesn't get that bonus despite working the whole year. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's all like you said in context of the of the contract. Because at first read, there it seems well, okay. He 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 resigned in twenty twenty one, but it's actually twenty twenty that bonus being paid for. So it would seem automatic they would get it because he was there, you know, boots on the ground at the time that the bonus was accrued. But like you said, it's all inside the contract and it's all inside the language. So. You may be uh, correct right. on that one. Thomas, uh, appreciate the uh, the reaching out, pal. You want to follow through and talk to Stan on the phone. Here's how you do it, one 821 We'll take a short break into more of your calls. Just getting them lined up, 416-870-6400. Employment Law Show, Global News Radio.
You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio. Welcome back to the Employment Law Show on Global News Radio. Yeah, welcome back, 721, and plenty of time. Yep, 416-870-6400. That is the way you do it. Want to get to uh, to Michael here. Hey, Michael, good evening. Thanks for standing by. How are you? Yep, yep, good. Beautiful. Go ahead. Oh, okay. So, hey, Stan, um, um, I was listening to your show, and I was fired in October of this year. I worked, I worked for a very... A very large corporation who supplies loblaws with food stuff. But we work in the uh, the agricultural belt near Leamington, Ontario. So every year during the busy season, um, we're required to work about 64 days straight, seven days a week, 12 hours a day. And nobody except management is allowed to take any time off during that period. And I mean, we are we are literally zombies. So I pushed back a little bit uh, about that because my family was falling apart. We had to get the kids into school for COVID around September. It was really, really tough. Asked for some time off. They called me in on Monday and fired me. And they pointed to a contract that we were all forced to sign that said we would consent to all of the extra um, overtime, which was meaning 12 hours a day, seven days a week for 64 days straight which is approximately 82 hours a week. Um, and so I don't know. I just wondered, did that contract hold up? So they are, in fact, allowed to ask you to sign and consent to working additional hours. And if you did agree to that contract, uh, unfortunately, I mean, that is something that DSA provides for. There is an upper limit, just so you know, maximum hours of 48 hours a week in Ontario. For most employees, it does. Uh, there are some exceptions that are higher for other for certain ones, uh, but you can consent to working more as long as they have it in writing. So if you're telling me they told you to sign a contract that says I agree to work more than 48 hours a week, and as long as they paid you time and a half to do it, technically speaking, they're in compliance with the statute. Okay. Sorry, here, Michael. I mean, but the other aspect of your of your scenario that you were talking about is the fact that you think they let you go because you raised two safety concerns about now. And that certainly, I mean, if you can show a sort of nexus between that, uh, your decision to raise those concerns and their decision to let you go, that's certainly a violation of the statute potentially. And you're in real trouble for that, including fines and even possibly having you reinstated back to your job. Yeah. Problem is, is they, they have a very high, <laughs> a very prestigious law firm in Toronto. And as I was trying to go back and forth with human rights, eventually their law firm uh, got a hold of me and said that they would, if I brought any of this to the forefront, that they would sue me for defamation. Well, what I can tell you is you can't be sued for defamation for starting a lawsuit. Uh, allegations considered in a, in a statement of claim are not considered defamatory. They're considered allegations by, by nature, so they're not statements of fact. 
sector yeah. two and not amount to defamation. Uh, yeah. and, and the other, you know, the other defense for defamation always is truth. And right. uh, it sounds to me that you went to the wrong forum, though, because you mentioned the Human Rights Tribunal, and that's not really something that sounds like it applies to your scenario. Human Rights Tribunal yeah. is for, for people who have been discriminated against based on very no, no, no. specific grounds. Uh, I, 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 I sorry, I actually maybe misspoke. What, what I did do was, was they're a huge supplier to Loblaws. And what, what, what I said back to them was that Loblaws has a supplier code of conduct that says employees are not allowed to work more than 72 hours per week, like, period. That's the feeling. So as soon right. as I mentioned that, they, that's where the defamation came in. They said if, if I contacted Loblaws about that provision, that they would then sue me because I would be messing with their suppliers. Well, I don't see how that could be defamation. I mean, you're just pointing out a policy in the handbook. Now, I don't do. I don't necessarily think that Loblaws' policies apply to its suppliers. Uh, that's you know that's not necessarily how this works. But that's by no means defamation. I mean, it sounds like unfortunately what they're trying to do is intimidate and scare you, and use scare tactics to make you essentially give up. Um, you know, I, again, I can. I can tell you that going to the Ministry of Labor with these concerns, that's not defamation, and that you have every right to do it, regardless of what, whether the company wants you to or not, frankly. Mikey, appreciate the call. We're going to let you go and uh, continue on. Still got lots of time. You want to talk to Stan as well? You can do so, 416-870-6400. 416-870-6400. Get to another email, help at uh, employmentlawyer.ca. That's the email address, Caleb. Is up next. Uh, Caleb writes in. I work for one of the banks, and they help uh, they help me pay for some of my continuing education courses. At the time, I signed a document stating that I would work for the bank for at least two years after the course was completed, or they can ask for the money back. It has now been a year, but I haven't. Uh, I have a really good employment opportunity I want to pursue. Would I have to pay back the money they gave me for continuing education course if I resigned? I'm sorry. I'm sorry to tell Caleb, but you know he signed a contract with a company stating that. Uh, now, does that mean the bank's going to enforce that every single time and force him to pay back the money? No, not necessarily. I've seen many times when companies just let this stuff go and and don't do anything about it. But you know you have to rem- you have to read what you're signing in these contracts, and you have to presume that. They're going to, you know, enforce whatever it says is going to apply to you. And if a contract says that you've got to stick on stick around for two years if we pay for this course, you know, then you may have to do that. If if it says that you leave and you have to pay them back for the course, you have you may have to do that. You have to be prepared to live with that. Uh, it's you know ultimately this what he's talking about is a gratuitous payment done by the employer. Obviously, they're doing it so you can further your own skills and then apply those skills to the workplace and, and increase productivity, generally speaking, and they want to retain you after paying for that skills upgrade. So, you know, the lo- I can understand logic from the company's perspective, and all I can t- say to Caleb is just make sure that, uh, y- you know, you have that discussion with your employer, see if they'll be willing to forgive that debt ultimately, because that's really the only way around it. Yeah. Bobby's up next. Again, help at employmentlawyer.ca is the email address. Bobby says, guys have been uh, laid off since March 2020 and have not been recalled. I heard uh, they replaced me at work through some of my colleagues, but when I spoke to the owner, he said he still intends to eventually call me back. What can I do? 
Yeah. I, I, another kind of example that I'm hearing from a lot of employees, um, John, of unfortunately, I think employers taking advantage of this pandemic to try to get rid of long-term employees without paying them out. And that's kind of what it sounds like is going on here. And of course, there's you know many things that Bobby can do in this situation. I mean, number one, he can just take the position he's been terminated, not not constructively dismissed, just flat out terminate, saying all my employee, all the other people are back. I know you've replaced my job. You know, you, you your words say one thing, but obviously the circumstances and actions say another. And I think that based on on the totality of the circumstances, I've been let go. The other thing Bobby can also do is take the position that he's been constructively dismissed. You know, that the, if he's never been laid off, then the company never had a right to lay him off back in March. And regardless of these regulations, as you know, John, we're, you know, we've taken the position and we believe that they do not apply to the common law and that no employer has a right to lay people off irrespective of the pandemic circumstances. And, and kind of the last thing that Bobby can do, only because we're kind of entering the, the end of the infectious disease leave period, I think we all hope at least, but those regulations are set to end as of July 3rd, he can call the employer's bluff and just say, okay, fine, I'll wait around until July 3rd. And once those regulations are expired, well, then there's no possible re- reasoning to keep him from the workplace. And if he's not recalled at that point, there's no question. I mean, it's, it's a termination by operation of statute. So you do have options, Bobby. And, the, and if you need to discuss this further, feel free to give us a call at the firm and we'll be happy to speak to you. Bobby, that number, again, I keep giving it out. Uh, write it down, one 821 5900 you know, it it, uh, it seems like a long well, it has been a long time. It's been over a year that he's been off. So say we fast forward to July, the end of the grace period happens. He doesn't get called back. And now he decides to call you, say, Stan, get me out of here. Uh, constructively dismissed. I'm, I'm done. I want my severance. Has his severance accrued since the day of the layoff as well? So if he was a 10-year guy in 2020, now March 2021, is he an 11-year guy when it comes to your severance? So, you know, it's, what I would say is, as his lawyer, I'm going to take the position that's most beneficial. You know, because certainly you can take the position, I think that you have, that's actually correct in a lot of ways. But if you take the position that the termination happens in July, the layoff period, you're still an employee. The statute's very clear on that. So that time accrues and you continue to accrue year, uh, years of service. However, it may be more beneficial in this potential scenario to take the position that the termination happened in March. Because let's say this person's got a job now. You know, they were out of work for 12 months. They finally found a job, uh, but, they, but they still have a loss of income for 12 months. Well, I would be taking the position that no, no, the termination happened way back in March when you didn't have the right to lay them off to begin with, or to the, to the best extent. I mean, now that the regulations are over and you haven't recalled them, well, now we know the terminate, that, that uh, break in the relationship back in March 2020 was a was a termination. We just weren't sure about it at the time. The regulations are done, and we know that's a termination now because you haven't been recalled. So it's always important to, you know, to canvas the individual's circumstances and decide what the best course of action is. Because honestly, as the plaintiff, you kind of set the narrative. You know, you can choose to pick which option is more beneficial to you. It doesn't mean the court will necessarily agree, sure. but it's going to be really hard for a company to argue that the termination happened, you know, if you take the position that the termination happens in July of 2021, it's going to be impossible for a company to argue otherwise. 
because were they going to say, no, actually, we, we terminate him all the way back in 2020. We just didn't tell him at the time. A judge is not going to look very fondly upon that kind of argument. So you have, you know, when you're making the first step, you have the ability to set the narrative, you're in the driver's seat, and at the end of the day, it's a matter of what's best for that particular individual. Right. 416-870-6400. Have uh, a lot of time for you to call through still, so don't be bashful. Bring it on. Jason is up next. Again, help at employmentlawyer.ca is where we're going to tonight. Get rid of some of these emails and get some of these questions uh, answered. Jason says, guys, I've been on a disability uh, since 2018. The company sent me a letter through the mail saying something about my employment contract being frustrated because of my medical issues. They pay me some small amount after 25 years and are saying that is all I am owed. Not sure what this means and needs some clarification. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so to break this down for you, Jason, I mean, basically what the company is arguing here is that because of your medical disability and because of uh, you know, presumably some medical evidence that you've provided them that suggests you're not going to be able to come back to work anytime soon, or as they say, in the reasonable, uh, reasonably foreseeable future, the company is taking the position that essentially the employment contract cannot continue through no party's fault because of the disability. And therefore, the employment contract is effectively frustrated and cannot be performed. In such a scenario, unfortunately, if that is true, an employee isn't entitled to common law damages, regardless of whether they have a contract or not. If a contract is frustrated, then really the common law says, well, that's unfortunate, but it's neither party's fault, so nobody gets anything. Now, our statute does come into play here, and there is a provision in the Employment Standards Act, one of the regulations specifically, that talks uh, that provides for an employee to get something in this scenario, and it effectively says that if your employment contract is specifically frustrated due to medical circumstances, then you are still entitled to your minimum payments under the statute, and that's what I'm suspecting happened here, Jason. But you know, the one thing that I, I sort of picked up on from that email is that he's been disabled since 2018. In legal terms, three, two and a half, three years is not a very, very long no. time no. to determine whether an employee is permanently disabled or there's, it's an impossibility that the contract can continue. Uh, so unless there's really strong medical evidence from this person's doctor effectively saying, like, no, he's never working again, it, it, I think that's going to be a very tough position for the employer in this situation to substantiate because really – Two and a half years is, is not that long a time in disability terms, in employment law terms, to find out conclusively whether the employment contract has been frustrated or not. Yeah, and nowhere in this email does it say anything about, you know, a doctor's medical team saying, you know, now his punch card's full, he's never coming back. It, it doesn't say that here. Like you said, 25-year guy, you know, working on three years seems a little premature. And, and and if it was, if it was truly frustration of contract at that point, and he's, he's kept to the, uh, the minimums, what would that be for a 25 year guy? Well, depending on the employer, if they have that $2.5 million uh, payroll or not, right. presuming they do, then we're talking eight weeks of termination pay. And we're talking another 25 weeks of severance pay. If they don't, then unfortunately, all we're talking about is eight weeks. 
But beginning back to the point sorry, I think you were making, oh, sorry, the beginning back to yeah. that point that I think you were you were kind of making there, John, is that, that really, you know, that's the key here. What are the doctors saying? Only yeah. do- only your doctors, the people actually seeing you and evaluating you, can determine the answer to that question. So even if you know if, if your disability insurer says you're you're not able to work or you are able to work and cut you off from disability, if your employer says that, that's not really that relevant. The end of the day, it's about what your doctors are saying. 416-870-6400. Use the number. Call in. Stephen, thanks for hanging on. Good evening. Hey, how are you? Good, brother. What's uh, what's on your mind? Um, the company I work for just announced that they are um, carving out one of the business units that I work for. I'm a sales executive. And the new company that's, taking, uh, that's buying the business unit has confirmed that everyone in that everyone who is affected by the change will have a new role at the new company, exact mm-hmm. same role, same sales executive role. Um, because this is a change in I guess a change in employers, would my existing employer require to pay a severance package? I think this is considered a constructive dismissal. Uh, it's not necessary. So let me just ask you about this sale. Is it a new? Is a new company coming in and buying? Like, is this a completely separate entity, or is this uh, within the you know your current employer's sphere of corporate entities? No, completely separate entity. Okay. So, and and it's only an. It sounds like it's an asset sale because they're only buying a division of the company and obviously not buying the shares and the entirety of the company. So legally speaking, what happens here is that, yes, you're right. You're actually being terminated by your old employer because uh, obviously you're not working there anymore. <laughs> now, that's the clearest, usually the clearest sign that you're being terminated. Uh, that being said, so they would owe you, you know, whatever your common law entitlements are. And I don't know what your factors are, but whatever they may be. But because you're starting on with a new employer, you're going to start earning income right away which means that every dollar you're earning is going to mitigate what your old employer owes you. And usually what happens in these scenarios is that they really only end up owing you your minimum entitlements under the statute. So if your minimum entitlements under the statute are eight weeks, oftentimes they just give you eight weeks of working notice and say, that's all you get. Now, keep in mind, though, that your years of service with the old employer will very likely carry over to the new employer. So if you are terminated by the new employer, they have to recognize your previous years unless they are asking you to sign a contract that specifically says they are not recognizing your previous years. So even though your old employer may not pay you out for all those years, if you lose this job sometime in the future, it will count and you will get credit for all those years. Okay. Fair enough. No good. Okay. Thanks, Stephen. Appreciate that. You want a further conversation with uh, Stan? You could do so. Here is how it's done. It's one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred to carry on and pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. I want to skip down to Megan. Like this email says, I'm a single mother with two small children. They get out of school at three p.m. for the last five years. I've always left work early to pick them up. Now my employer is saying that I have to stay until at least four p.m but there's no one else who can pick them up from school. Are they just allowed to change my schedule like that? So, so, I mean, in general terms, I would say that changing an individual's schedule by one hour is likely not going to be a constructive dismissal. I mean, it's within you know a reasonable 
time frame that we would, would generally objectively say is not too onerous. But those, those are general circumstances. And what it sounds like is going on for Megan is obviously she, that's not workable. You know, in her in her circumstances, that hour change is very significant because it obviously leaves her two children at school without anyone to potentially re, uh, look after them. So what I would say here is that that's probably, despite the, the small change, a constructive dismissal. On top of that, though, you know, what also is going on here is potential vi- uh, discrimination on the basis of family status because obviously Megan would have legal obligations to make sh- to care for the safety of her children. She can't just forego those obligations. If you do, you probably have the police knock on your door. And, and if there really is no one else to look after them and pick them up from school, she can rely on the fact that, well, I have, there's no way, other way to accommodate me, but for the employer allowing me to continue to leave at 3 p.m. And if they don't accommodate me in that way, well, I can take the position that's discrimination on the basis of my family status and they have to accommodate me unless there is undue hardship. In your experience, though, Stan, I mean, if, if this if this ever came that far to him calling you and you getting involved, I mean, on the basis of an hour, would they even, would the company just basically back off? I mean, at that point, is it worth them, is that fight worth it to go down, to, 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 to get in the ring and battle with you over something like that based on a human rights violation due to family status? I mean, you'd like to think that's not worth it. I certainly would think that it's not worth it. But, yeah. and, you know, it's all, they're all individual companies. And most most people in business are in business to make money and make rational business decisions. Uh, and then some people are not that rational. And they make very emotional decisions that are probably not in the best interests of their business. So I'd like to say that, yes, I think that most employers would act reasonably and understand the the circumstances that Megan faces and the fact that, you know, she may not have another choice or option. From my experience, people don't always act reasonably, unfortunately. Yeah, no kidding, right? Uh, Boris Zappi says, uh, guys, my employer took away my company vehicle and won't tell me why. Is there anything I can do? So that's, uh, it's interesting why they would take away a vehicle and not necessarily provide you with that information as to, well, how do you support? I mean, I assume that Boris needs the company vehicle to get around to for various business company purposes. So what is, what is the intention of the company here? Uh, and I can tell you, I've recently come across a case where, you know, where this in fact did happen, that they took away an individual's company vehicle, didn't replace it, didn't tell them why. And a court ultimately determined that that company vehicle was part of that person's compensation to work for the employer and that by taking it away and effectively, you know, forcing the employer employee in that circumstances to use their own vehicle, incur those costs and taking away a form of compensation, the court determined that that was a constructive dismissal. So Boris, what I can tell you is that, you know, depending on the circumstances, this could be a constructive dismissal and it would allow you to walk away and claim that them taking away that vehicle was a termination. And if it ever came to that, that uh, that car would be uh, would be part of his compensation going forward, either hanging on to the car during the length of the uh, severance period, or they'd have to give him an equal uh, severance amount as to what the car would cost, something like that, would they not? Yeah, so it, it, there's a few ways to calculate it. Courts have right. done it differently, you know, with the way, generally speaking, when you're dealing with a company vehicle as opposed to a car allowance, uh, the way courts will look at it is to determine how much of it 
is being used for personal purposes. And that's actually, you know, it may sound difficult to determine considering who knows how, you know, when you're using your car for business or when you're using your car for personal uh, purposes. But that's actually something that you're required to track, generally speaking, and it's listed in a T4. Where if, yeah, yeah, there's a box for it in T4 where if, you know, if you use your company vehicle 40% of the time of, uh, as for personal uses, then that's considered part of your compensation, which therefore has to be taxed and therefore has to show up on your T4 so that it can be taxed. A lot of good stuff today. Appreciate the phone calls we had and all your emails. We'll try to get to more uh, on the Wednesday night show and then following on the weekend as well. In the meantime, reaching out to Stan, real, real simple, one 821 5900 The phone number, email is help at employmentlawyer.ca and the free website anytime with lots of employment law information available for you 24-7, free of charge, anonymous, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. We'll do this again. Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, so come back for that, please. And we'll continue with On Point. Alex Pearson coming right back. This is Global News Radio. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio.